wanted to just give credit where credit's due. A lot of what I'm talking about today comes from the book, Entering the Presence of God by Derek Prince. Um, And if you have a chance to get a copy, read it. It is really, really good. And the best thing is that if you don't understand something the first time you read it, you can go back and you can read it again and mull over it. And um, I know that God will speak to you through that. So today is our third sermon in our series on worship. And so far, David has given us two introductory sermons um, and, and talked a little bit about the fact that thanksgiving relates to God's goodness to us, the good things he's done. Praise relates to God's greatness, but worship relates to God's holiness. And we also learned that holiness is the entirety of God's character. God is light, he is love, he is justice and judgment. He is anger and wrath, mercy and loving kindness. He is grace and power. And we also looked at the fact that it's difficult for our human minds to understand a holy God because there is nothing else that is holy. No one else is holy except for God. And we also saw that worship was a lifestyle and an attitude, a way that we live. And worship also comes before service. We saw the picture of the cherubs with six wings. Two wings were covering their eyes and two, or faces, two wings were covering their feet, that was worship, to cover the face and the feet. And two wings were flying, and that is service. So we see that worship is more important than service, and it comes before service. And today I wanna outline to you what the Bible says about how we should approach God as part of our worship. Now, our society at present is not very good at recognizing that proper protocol is important especially for young people. It's not something that we talk about. And often we follow protocols without really giving it much thought. We've got protocols for weddings. You don't wear white unless you've requested that from the bride and you don't wear the same color as the bridesmaid. Um, There's protocols for waiting in line. You don't push in. Um, There's protocols for meetings with agendas and motions and passing and all the stuff that you have to learn when you start going to proper business meetings. And for these, we approach things in a particular way. We use particular vocabulary. Um, We dress um, appropriately. And I did a little bit of a research um, in preparation for this sermon because I knew that we were talking about approaching a holy God, the king of all kings. And so I thought, I'll have a look and see what our society says we should do when we're meeting the queen. And um, some of them are pretty funny. Uh, If you are planning on meeting the Queen, if you want to use her official title, it is Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. But apparently you can just call her Your Majesty and then ma'am thereafter. You don't touch the Queen unless she's extended her hand to you already and you don't grasp it and shake it up and down. And whatever you do, do not lean in to kiss the Queen. I'm sure some people have tried and then, um, yes, been taken out possibly. And you never turn your back on the queen. That's a sign of honor. And I also found this advice from a businessman for addressing a king. And I'd like you to take note of these because these apply to the king of kings. A king deserves your attention. A king must be addressed with dignity and honor. There can be no offense before the king The king may correct you or choose to disregard your idea in favor of another course of action. Your own own agenda is secondary to those of whom you represent and to that of the king. A king has wisdom. 
It is not for you to correct the king. So when we approach God, we are entering and we, and we wanna enter the presence of a holy God, we are entering the presence of the King of Kings. And as such, we have to do so on his terms and not our own. Worship involves complete reverence in approaching God. When we enter God's presence, we cannot rely on what we think or feel or want to dictate our behavior. We must follow God's prescribed way of access into the throne room. As always, the place to look for this is in God's word, the Bible. And there's a verse in Hebrews that indicates that the pattern of how to approach God is given to us in the form of the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Now, there are approximately 40 chapters of the Bible that are dedicated to the tabernacle complex um, and the list of items and how they relate to each other. And they're actually listed in two separate sections, a repeat. So when God dedicates that much space of the Bible to it, we know that it's important and we ought to pay attention. In verse five of Hebrews eight, the writer tells us that the tabernacle is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything, in according, in everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The tabernacle was created as the visible dwelling place of God. The Israelites would enter the complex for one purpose, to meet with God, to sacrifice, to worship. The tabernacle was God's initiative, God's idea, and God's design. The high priest would follow God's method to progress through the tabernacle in a very prescribed way, and once per year, he would be allowed to enter the holy of holies into the immediate presence of God. Now for us under the new covenant, that way of access has been opened up through Christ's death and resurrection. So we have access to the very throne room of God. God has chosen to make us his dwelling place. Ephesians 2.22, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, the tabernacle was eventually replaced by the temple as God's dwelling place. And in the passage that we read, Paul demonstrates that we as the body of Christ are now the dwelling place of God by his Holy Spirit under the new covenant. Thus, the, tab the tabernacle is an illustration of how we are to approach God. It is a clear path that is put before us. So I'd like to describe for you the tabernacle complex. It consisted of three main sections. You've got the outer court, which is a bit like a courtyard, with the bronze altar and the bronze laver. And then you go through to, into a tent-like structure, which was the holy place. And in the holy place, you had the table of showbread, the golden lampstand and the altar of incense. And then through another veil, a very thick veil, was the Holy of Holies containing the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The tabernacle was a triune structure and in my opinion, it does not just represent the triune nature of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, but also the nature of man, the body, the soul, meaning your mind, will and emotions and the spirit. So in looking at the pattern of the tabernacle set out for us, we begin in the outer court. 
and we move step by step through to the holy place and then finally into the holy of holies, into the immediate presence of God. But in order to progress there, we must first enter the gate. Now I want you to imagine that you are standing outside of the gate. The only way to enter the tabernacle complex is through the gate. And Psalm 100 verse four states that we're to enter the gates with thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. The way to begin our approach to God is to thank him for his goodness to us. However, it is possible to step through the gate but not go any further. Now, we've just had a series on discipleship and one of the important things that we need to do if we're gonna disciple someone is to really ascertain where someone is on their journey with Christ. And I have the privilege of teaching in a school where we are expected to lead devotions with our home classes every morning. And I distinctly remember a young man who believed God existed and he was passionate in thanking God for the wonderful things that God had done for him, for education, family, friends, um, for having a roof over his head. And yet he, in terms of the tabernacle complex, is just standing through the gate. He hasn't yet moved any further forward because he hasn't accepted Christ as his Lord and Saviour. And it's really easy to thank God, but to worship him requires that we move further. And after stepping through the gate, we have now entered into the courts. But what are we there for? We are there to worship, and so we have to continue. Entering the gate leads you to the outer court, and I believe this is a representation of our physical body. Likewise, when we approach God, we begin in the physical or natural realm. The outer court is the area in which we relate to the body and life of Jesus Christ when he walked on earth. Jesus was fully human. He was able to be seen, able to be heard, able to be touched by natural senses. And so it is in the outer court court, that we receive revelation through our natural senses or through human knowledge. We see creation around us, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, and we read about God in his word. When approaching God, most people would try and begin with the spiritual, but God says, I want your body and the contents as well. The first object that you would encounter in the outer court was the brazen altar. It stood in such a way that no person entering the tabernacle would be able to bypass the altar. The altar was square in shape and it was made of bronze. This was the altar where the animals were sacrificed and slaughtered and sacrificed to God. The bronze altar represents Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf. And in his book, Entering the Presence of God, Derek Prince says, Only when we begin at the cross and receive the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, the benefits of his shed blood, can we move on in our progression of worship. To me, this makes perfect sense. You cannot even begin to worship unless you start at the cross. The bronze altar had four sides that I believe represent four provisions of God made through the death of Jesus on the cross. They are the forgiveness of past sin, the taking away of sin, the death of our old nature and the burnt offering. The first of these provisions is the forgiveness of past sins. Romans 3, 25 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Unless our sins are forgiven, we cannot progress any further toward God. 
The second provision of God was the taking away of sin. It is important to note the difference between sins, the sinful acts that have been committed, and sin, the evil, corrupt, enslaving force that causes you to sin. Sin is the source of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he dealt with the root issue. An exchange took place. Jesus was made sin so that in return, we might be made righteous. The third provision through Christ's death on the cross is the death of our old corrupt nature. Now, I'm not sure if you've realized, but there's a rebel inside each one of us and there's no cure or remedy for this rebel. You can't send it to church or you know, give it lots of spanking on the bottom. It's not gonna cure it. The only way to deal with this rebel is death. The rebel must be executed. And the same way, the only escape from the slavery of sin is through the death of our old sinful nature. God's mercy meant that this execution took place in the person of Jesus. Romans 6.6 6 says, Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Our old man died with Christ, and this is a fact that we must know and rely on. The fourth side of the altar is the place where we offer ourselves as the burnt offering. We all know the verse from Romans 12, one to two. Therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. However, we cannot offer ourselves as an acceptable sacrifice until we've visited the other three sides of the altar. In the Old Testament, the burnt offering was a gift offered to God that was totally consumed in the flames. And God wants our whole being. We must offer our entire bodies, our entire lives on the altar in the same way as the sacrificial animals of the Old Covenant. With one exception, not dead, but alive. And from that point on, your body does not belong to you. 1 Corinthians 19 to 20 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. And for the podcast listeners, I've underlined this next bit. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Now, a sacrificial animal cannot simply hop off the altar, run around, do what they choose, and then get back on any old time they like. And when we choose to offer ourselves to God, we are choosing to place our entire self on the altar with nothing hanging over the edge, nothing missed out, and we are choosing to stay there. Our bodies do not belong to us anymore, but to God. And next we come to the bronze laver. The laver was a large basin of water and it was used for washing the hands of the feet. And just as a side note, if the priest was to go past the laver and try and enter the Holy of Holies without washing, he would die. That's how important this was. And the laver stood between the altar and the tent of the tabernacle. No one could pass the laver without washing in it. I believe that the laver represents God's word. In Exodus 38.8, it states that the bronze for the laver was taken from the mirrors of the Israelite women. Now, back in that day, they didn't have glass, so the best mirrors they had were bronze, polished bronze. And in James 1, we are told that the word of God is a mirror. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. 
God's word reflects our inward spiritual condition rather than our physical appearance. We have two options when we read the word of God. We can say we're really not that bad and ignore any necessary changes or adjustments that need to be made. Or we can hear and obey the word of God. Verse 25 of James states that it is those who read the word and obey it that will be blessed. Now secondly, God's word is our judge. John 12, 47 to 48. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So God the Father is judge, and he has committed all judgment to the Son. But we see here in verse 48 that Jesus has committed all judgment to the word. So the word is the standard by which we will be judged. Thirdly, the laver was filled with water and the word of God is a cleansing agent. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church. A little while ago, Richard shared with us a vision that really stuck in my mind, and I'd like to share it with you now. There was a great open space with towel rails as far as the eye could see. Some had towels on them and some didn't. Some towels were on the ground under the rails. Some towels had been used and others had not been used. The interpretation given was that everyone has a towel rail. The purpose of a towel is to dry off the water from yourself after you have washed with the word. Towels that were unused represented those that were irregular in their reading of the word. Towels that were crumpled on the ground represented those that were careless with the word. The towels that were hung up to dry represented those that had just been reading the word before the vision. And the towels that were missing, well, no towel was actually needed because there was no washing in the word. What is the condition of your towel? Is it used, is it dry, is it crumpled? Is it missing in action? Now, just as showering is a habit that hopefully all of us have decided to, to build up in our lives so that we don't smell and people don't kind of sit far away from us, we also need to build the same habit with the washing of the water by the word of God. You see, regularly washing in the word is part of our worship to God. Derek Prince states, Christ redeemed the church by his blood so that he might thereafter cleanse and sanctify it with the washing of the water of the word of God. Jesus is coming for a bride who is made holy and glorious by the washing of the word. Any believer who does not study the word and submit to the word and obey the word and live by the word cannot expect to be ready for the coming of Christ. 1 John 5, 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and by blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The blood and the water must go together. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins and no access to God. But without the word, there's no cleansing. Our impurities are not washed away, nor are we fit for the presence of God. Jesus shed his blood so that he might cleanse and sanctify us by his word. He came by water and by blood. 
So that brings us to the end of our journey in the outer court. And if we're gonna come to God in his prescribed way, the next area we need to go into is to the holy place. And I believe this area represents our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions. But to enter the holy place, you must first pass through a curtain or a veil. The first veil represents Christ's resurrection from the dead. And it brings us into an area that has been opened to us through Christ's resurrection. We are now moving from the revelation by physical or natural means into revelation of the risen Christ. This is where we receive revelation imparted by the Holy Spirit. And within the holy place, there were three main objects. There was the table of bread, which represents the will, the lampstand, which represents our intellect, and the altar of incense, which represents our emotions. Now, let's first look at the table of showbread. In scripture, bread is symbolic of strength. And the strength of the soul is not in the emotions or the intellect, but in the will. It's fairly easy to get people emotionally stirred up in church, but it is totally ineffective if that person does not change their will. Now, I've been on youth camps, I've been to conferences, I've been to professional developments for school, those types of things, made New Year's resolutions, and you come away feeling really excited and g'd up to go out there and change the world and do good things, but... Nine times out of 10, not much has happened unless your will has been changed. It is the will that makes the difference. Emotional hype does comparatively little. Now Christ himself is our pattern for the will. His body was prepared for one purpose, to do the will of the Father. John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Likewise, there is only one reason that we have a body, to do God's will. When we seek the Father's will, we will have perception, we will have discernment, and we will have judgment. We will not be deceived. It is by surrendering your own will that you discover the perfect will of God and receive the strength to do it. Doing God's will actually gives our souls strength and purpose. Further, the will, uh, the word showbread literally translates to bread of the face. It was the bread that was always before the face of God. And our will should be like loaves of bread on a table before God, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Leviticus 24, verses five to nine says, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons. In this passage, we see eight successive features that are mentioned about the showbread. Firstly, the flour was very fine. Isaiah 28, 28 tells us that bread corn is bruised. God deals with our will in, with continual bruising until it is as smooth and as fine as the flour for the showbread. This is when it's acceptable to God. Secondly, the loaf must be molded. Our will needs to be molded to conform to the will of God revealed in the scriptures. And the pattern for that molding is Jesus. Next, the bread is baked. 
Baking requires heat, and heat represents testing. Our will must be tested. How can you truly say that your will conforms to the Father unless it has been tested? It is in the hard times, the days and the weeks, when it seems like nothing is going right, that our resolve is truly put to the test. If we can truthfully say, not my will, Lord, but yours, on days like that, then we know our will is submitted to God. The bread must be ordered. There were 12 loaves in two rows of six. Keeping the showbread in order takes discipline. And without discipline, you cannot be a disciple. Now, when I first read this, um, it was like God shined a massive flashlight on my life. Um, It was bright, it was shining, and I saw lots of things that needed to be changed. I saw the state of my bedroom. I saw the state of my desk at work. Um, And my life in general, I don't think ordered was the word that you could use for it. Probably chaotic was a better description. And when I went before the Lord, I really did have to repent. You see, I'd not been in the habit of going before the Lord at the beginning of a day and submitting my will to His. Now, I was actively pursuing God and, you know, trying to live a life of discipleship, but there was something missing. I needed to be intentional in submitting my will and doing things His way. If you have trouble keeping order in your life, I suggest that you check the showbread. The next characteristic of the bread that we see is that it must be covered by frankincense. In the Bible, frankincense always signifies worship. We submit our will gladly, not begrudgingly, and we do so without reservation. Your will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, is the standard. We must positively delight to do God's will. The bread also must be continually displayed before the face of God. God wants to see where the bread is and that it's in order. The bread was protected by a double crown. The double crown was to protect any, fra- any stray crumbs from falling to the ground. And similarly, there is a double crown around our wills. Luke 21, verse 36 says, Watch therefore and pray always, 24 hours a day, that you may be counted worthy to escape all of these things. That's the double crown, to watch and to pray. If we don't watch and pray, we will be caught off guard. Lastly, the bread was put there fresh. We must regularly rededicate our will to the Lord. Smith Wigglesworth says, every new revelation demands a new dedication. We must continually rededicate our wills to God. The next item of furniture in the holy place was the lampstand. The lampstand was a seven-branch candlestick and it represents the intellect, the source of light. The oil in the lampstand represents the human intellect as illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Everything in the tent of the tabernacle was made of pure gold, but the lampstand was of beaten gold. And so was the cherubim, actually. Pure gold is divine in nature. Beaten gold is of divine workmanship. The mind is a creation of God and it must be beaten and shaped and formed into a certain form. Our intellects need to be fashioned and shaped into what God intends through study and through discipline. 2 Corinthians 10 verse five says, we demolish every argument, sorry, I'm gonna start that again. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
When we, when we are left to our own devices, our thoughts are in opposition to God. The process of hammering our intellect is the process of bringing our carnal minds into captivity to the obedience of Christ. When the Holy Spirit captivates the mind, it agrees with scripture in every point. Ephesians 4.23 tells us to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And in this verse, the word renewed is actually a continuing present tense. It indicates a process. It's not gonna happen overnight, but it will happen. The intellect is also the way that we understand the things of God. When we read the Bible, we ought to be asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures and to enable us to understand them. Without his help, the scriptures are really quite confusing and difficult. Ask any non-believer. But when we yield our minds to the Holy Spirit, we gain understanding and we gain insight into what God is saying to us. Jesus sets a pattern for our mind in the same way that he sets a pattern for our will. We must learn to think the way that Jesus thought, and the key word is humility. The crucified mind does not argue with God. Instead, it says yes and amen. When our minds are yielded to the Holy Spirit, it completely agrees with scripture. Now, I'm gonna add a word of caution here, and I'm gonna do so in the form of a quote from Derek Prince. If your will gets out of order, your illuminated intellect will reveal it, but it will also resent it. Then you will go into darkness. Instead of getting true revelation, you will get false revelation. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 23, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now I believe this is so important for end times and the, because, well, I personally believe that it can't be long before Christ comes again and we need to be able to know who the true God is and receive revelation from Him and not from another source. I'm gonna actually repeat that again. If your will gets out of order, your illuminated intellect will reveal it, but it will also resent it. Then you will go into darkness. Instead of getting true revelation, you will get false revelation. Jesus said, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The final piece of furniture in the holy place was the altar of incense. It was the tallest item in the room. It had horns at the top on each corner and between the horns burned a fire. The only item that was allowed to be placed within this fire was the special incense that was unlawful to be used or even copied in any other situation. There is an adoration that is unlawful to offer to anyone else or anything else but God. The golden altar is, the realm of, is in the realm of the soul. God first deals with the showbread, our wills, and then with the intellect, our mind, and then he deals with our emotions. Emotions are an essential part of mankind. God desires to be in control of our emotions, and if we allow our emotions to control us, we become a slave to them. But once the will and the intellect have been dealt with, we can turn loose our emotions. So let's look a little further at the golden altar. The altar was four-sided and it was square, meaning that the sides were equal in dimension. Our emotions must be balanced, not given to one type over another. And it's my personal belief that a person who's unstable in their emotions is not living according to the word of God. Also, the altar was protected by a single crown at its top. The crown that protects the emotions is self-control. Our emotions should never be in charge. But this does not mean that we can be unemotional we have to be unemotional. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm not 
an unemotional person. Um, I've been known to do a happy dance just because I realised it's a long weekend or that lunch is coming up. You know, you've heard me at football matches. And, you know, I know that God loves us to revel, revel in his goodness and his mercy and his victory. And in 2 Samuel, we hear an account of David, King David, dancing with all his might before the Lord. Now, David was a muscular man, and I cannot imagine that a single muscle in his body remained unused when he danced. And no, David Thomas, I am not talking about you, even though you do go to the gym and you lift heavier weights than I. So David, it was David's will that was in control. David's will that told his body to let loose with the emotions and dance before God. Our emotions must come in their proper place. And between the horns of the altar, a fire burned. The fire symbolizes intensity, purity, and passion of the soul. God wants us to be passionate in our love for him, but it is a controlled, purified, and directed passion. Kate Booth Clibben, daughter of William Booth, once said, Jesus loves us passionately, and he wants to be loved passionately. Now, the next characteristic of the, the altar of incense is perhaps my favorite. The incense that was burned in the fire speaks of devotion made fragrant by the test of fire. The frankincense that was offered is a black, unattractive lump until you put it in the fire and then it becomes fragrant and beautiful and sweet. On the other hand, honey, which is sweet and lovely, when you put it in the fire becomes a black sticky mess. In Leviticus 2.11, God instructed the Israelites not to burn yeast or honey in their offerings. God does not want sweet talk or nice phrases unless it stands the test of fire. When the frankincense was burned in the fire of the altar, white smoke rose up to heaven. And this, I believe, is adoration expressed in praise and worship. The altar of incense represents the place of worship in the life of the believer, only God is worthy of our worship. When the frankincense, oh, hang on, where am I? Oh yeah, sorry. When the frankincense was burned in the fire of the altar, white smoke rose up to heaven. Did I just read that? I did, I'm sorry. Okay, finally, the horns of the altar were purified with blood each year on the Day of Atonement. Our worship must always acknowledge that we only have access by the blood of Jesus. Any offering that isn't through the blood of Jesus is totally unacceptable to God. This is not a small matter, so I'm gonna repeat it. The only way of access into the presence of God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The altar of incense becomes our transition from the holy place into the holy of holies, from the realm of the soul into the spirit. And with our will, our intellect and our emotions in accordance with God's requirements, we are then ready to enter into the very presence of God and discover true worship. So to do that, we need to pass through a veil. And under the old covenant, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And then only once a year on the day of atonement, he would enter with blood from the brazen altar and a censer filled with the incense from the golden altar. The way into the holiest place is with the blood of Jesus and with an attitude of worship. Without worship, we are confined to the realm of the soul. Without the blood of Jesus, we have no legal right of access into God's presence. Ephesians 2, four to six. But because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. 
even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I believe the second veil represents Christ's ascension. We are raised with Jesus from the dead, but we are also raised up to sit with him in the heavenly places. Now there are only two items of furniture in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. I believe that the Ark of the, uh, is representative of Christ, revealed to, us in, uh, revealed to our spirits. In scripture, an Ark always represents a type of Christ. Noah's Ark symbolized you in Christ, but the, uh, the Ark of Moses represents Christ in you. The ark was made of acacia wood and was lined outside and inside with gold. The wood represents Jesus' humanity and the gold represents his divinity. And within the ark stood three items, the stone tablets on which the 10 commandments were written, the golden pot of manna and the budded rod of Aaron. These items represent worship, fellowship and revelation. The two tablets of stones represent God's eternal righteous law. God's law is as unchanging as he is. In Psalm 40, we read a passage of scripture prophesying about the coming Messiah, Jesus. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God, and your law is written on my heart. The stone tablets in the ark signify Christ with God's law written on his heart never deviating by a hair's breadth from the eternal law of God's righteousness. Hebrews 8 verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It is a condition of being God's people that you have God's law written on your hearts. When Christ rules your heart, then God's law it rules our hearts. We are totally dependent on Christ. The second item in the ark was the pot of manna that was collected from when the Israelites wandered in the desert and God provided sustenance for them. John 6, 48 to 51 and verse 57 says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for, for the life of the world. In verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is the true manna that came down from heaven. We live by him and as he lives, as he lives by his union with the Father. It is this spiritual inward union with Christ by which he becomes the hidden manna in our hearts. And the third item in the ark was the rod that Aaron and Moses used to perform miracles before Pharaoh. Now, a rod is a symbol of authority. And when the Israelites challenged Aaron's authority as high priest, God caused his rod to bud and thereby vindicated his authority. Today, the name of the rod is not Aaron, it's Jesus. By the resurrection from the dead, God vindicated the divine claim of Jesus Christ. These three items, the stone tablets, the manna, and the budded rod, symbolize worship, fellowship, and revelation in that order. Out of worship, we enter into fellowship, 
And out of these come revelation of the mind, will, and purpose of God. God will not fellowship with someone who approaches with irreverence or with haste. The final item of furniture was the mercy seat, which sat, which sat covering the ark. There is no mercy, acceptance, or life outside of Christ. The mercy seat is Christ's atonement and sacrifice. It covers the law which none of us are able to keep and now becomes a throne. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is because God sits on the mercy seat, on Christ's atoning work, that we can go boldly into the throne of grace. Now above the ark were two cherubs made from beaten gold, kneeling and facing towards each other with wings outstretched and their tips touching. Worship, fellowship and revelation are again depicted in the cherub. The bowed wings are worship. The faces towards one another are fellowship. And God said he will reveal his glory where the wingtips met. Exodus 25 verses 20 to 22 describes the, the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are the ark, which are on the ark of the testimony. And I will speak about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Christ sits as king and priest upon his throne. The hidden life within the ark, the inner life of worship, must come first. Then we can step up onto the mercy seat and be seated with Christ on his throne. Jesus wants to share his throne with you, but there is an appointed way, step by step by step. Our purpose for progressing through the tabernacle is to come into God's presence, into the very throne room of God. It is here that we experience the privilege of direct person to person, spirit to spirit relationship with God. Man's spirit comes, in li comes alive in contact with its creator and all activities of the spirit have meaning only in relation to God himself. It is really the only purpose of our spirit. John 4, 23 to 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Neither our bodies nor our souls are capable of intimate fellowship with God. Instead, our spirit must move through our soul to move our bodies to worship God with all of our being. So we enter through the gate with thanksgiving. We acknowledge Christ's atoning work at the altar and offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We are cleansed by the washing with the word and then we move through the first curtain into the holy place. We submit our will to God, allowing him to bruise it and shape it to his will. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind, taking every thought captive to Christ and allowing his Holy Spirit to illuminate our thoughts. We then turn loose our emotions, offering our complete adoration to the Father in worship like sweet smelling incense. Then we enter into the very presence of God and discover true worship. 
fellowship and revelation. God wants to reveal himself to us, but we have to be prepared for that revelation. Worship is complete reverence in approaching God. And most people come to God for things like blessing, healing and power, but God wants us to come simply for him. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the pattern that you have shown us in your word, this clear path that we are to tread when we come into your presence. Would you illuminate our minds to understand what it is that you are saying to us? Would you bruise and shape our wills so that they conform to yours? Would you allow us to worship you and praise you with abandonment? And Lord, would you meet with us when we come into your very presence? Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that allows us access into your presence.